are listening to Open Science Talk, the podcast about, well, open science. This is episode 10, and today we are talking about what it's like to be an open access publisher. My guest today is Paul Peters, chief executive at Hindawi Publishing, one of the world's largest publishers of peer-reviewed fully open access journals. Paul Peters, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So uh, you're kind of representing uh, the publishers here uh, at Hindawi, but tell us a bit, uh, what is Hindawi? So yeah, uh, Hindawi is a a publisher um, of entirely open access journals. We were originally founded in 1997. Um, Our founder, Ahmed Hindawi, was a a physicist. He'd gotten his PhD in high energy physics in in, uh, University of Pennsylvania then moved back to Egypt and started the company in in 1997. Um, 2004, uh, we began uh, experimenting with open access. And by 2007, we had fully converted all of our journals to an open access model. Uh, Why did you do that? So one of the challenges of the subscription model, if you're a smaller publisher, is that it takes an incredible amount of resource to have the sales teams and the ability to um, sell journals and journal packages uh, into libraries. And particularly by the early 2000s, most library budgets were being spent on um, multi-year license agreements with very large publishers, which left um, almost no money available to pay for subscriptions for for smaller publishers. So um, what we found was that our ability to provide a high level of service to the researchers that we worked with and really um, uh, just excel as publishers worked better under an open access model where we then didn't have to go and and invest in sales teams and, uh, you know, uh, try to sign deals with with institutions. So uh, what happened with the company when you made that uh, transition? So it was um, an interesting period when you know, in 2004, that's when I joined the company and um, we had just begun experimenting with open access. And it took about three years before we had gotten comfortable enough that we could make the, the transition. Um, when we did that, still more than half our revenue was coming from subscriptions. And so uh, it was a bit of a leap of faith. But what we'd seen by that time, 2006, 2007, was that funding agencies and, you know, a lot of people within the research community were appreciating the benefits of open access. And so we thought that even if in the short term um, it would be an uphill battle, in the medium to long term uh, we would be on sort of the right side of, uh, of history. And um, indeed, I think within um, uh, a year or two after that uh, transition, we underwent very rapid growth. And you know, when I joined the company in 2004, we had about 40 employees. And by 2013, when I moved to the UK, we had over a thousand employees, and you know the company had really grown quite quite substantially. So, so um, this fall uh, there has been uh, some some huge uh, changes when it comes to policies, uh, especially in the EU. Um, do you feel um, uh, comfortable with uh, those kind of policies because you made that transition uh, years back? I mean, certainly, as a publisher. Um, in the current environment, it's a lot easier being an open access publisher than being a subscription publisher because it's becoming increasingly clear that uh, in the not too distant future, subscription publishing will become less and less viable because funding agencies and universities will insist that the research that they support is made open access. 
the most recent uh, developments that have been happening around Plan S, um, which is uh, an initiative from some of the largest funding agencies across Europe to mandate the researchers they fund to publish on an open access basis and then to provide funding to support that um, has a lot of potential within it. The The concern in that I've seen in the last couple of months since uh, the initial plans were announced is that most of the focus seems to be on figuring out how to accommodate the existing legacy journals um, that many researchers have you know, wanted to publish in, continue to publish in, and that they view as the most uh, prestigious titles in their field. And very little attention has gone into looking at how you support smaller publishers or more innovative new entrants, people that are trying to really bring change to scholarly publishing. And without supporting these new innovations, there's a risk that um, the additional funding coming in is going to further entrench the uh, traditional publishers as we start moving towards open access. So, so uh, what would you like to see from the funders and from EU on, on uh, that topic? So I think this is one of these areas where solutions are complicated because you have lots of diverse organizations on every side. Publishers are diverse. Um, funders are diverse. Institutions are diverse. And so there's no single solution I can put forward that will solve everyone's problem. But throughout my, my career, I've, I've been involved in quite a number of um, uh, industry initiatives. And so um, I'm, I'm the chair and one of the founding members of the Open Access Scholarly Publishers Association. I'm also the chair of Crossref, who provides a lot of infrastructure to support scholarly communication. And what I've seen with these organizations is that you can get people around a table who are have directly competing interests in every other way. I mean, at a place like Crossref, you've got essentially every scholarly publisher. And in their normal lives, they are competitors. But when they're sitting around the table at Crossref, they try to figure out how they can make infrastructure that benefits everyone. And so things like plagiarism detection and, you know, a lot of um, uh, citation practices and identifiers, these are things that could only work if everybody adopted them. And so I think a similar approach is needed now around open access and open access funding that funding agencies, institutions and publishers need to find a way to come together and address the problems that stand in the way of creating the world that everyone envisions. And too much of what I've seen recently is an approach that is inherently antagonistic, where mandates and proclamations on both sides get put out. And you've got a war of press releases from the publishers, from the funding agencies. And I don't see that's a productive path to solving the complicated problems we have. And so I think, um, you know, toning down the political rhetoric, bringing people around a table and really being committed to trying to come up with practical solutions is uh, is the best way forward. So um, uh, how do you envision uh, the future of uh, open access? If if your company was to, to define the future, um, what would it look like? So I think the ideal version of open access, which might not be the most likely version uh, of the future, but the ideal version I would see is a world in which scholarly publishing is provided as a service in the same way as many other things that researchers need to um, do as part of the, the, the process of doing research. And so just like a researcher would need to use their funds to buy equipment, pay for students, uh, travel to conferences and do all these things, I think publishing would be quite similar. And out of their budgets, um, when they've got grant funding to do a piece of research, 
part of the the money that is in that grant should cover the publication costs. And when it come to, comes time to publish, they should be looking for the the journals that provide them with the best quality of services, um, maybe a particular audience that's very important to them, or um, you know, a particularly good value. And I think for every researcher, there's going to be a different equation. Some are going to be more concerned about the cost of publication. Some are going to be more concerned about um, the value-added services. For example, a publisher linking the publication with data sets and other related items. And based on the particular needs of the researcher, they will decide where they would be publishing. Um, but in a market where publishers have to earn their position at the table every single day, and a publisher that stops providing high-quality services at a good price just wouldn't be competitive for very long. And that's how the economy broadly works in every other um, field. And scholarly publishing, is a, for a bunch of um, structural reasons, um, seems to suffer where there really isn't a competitive market um, at the moment. And I would like to see us creating a, a truly competitive market as we go forward. But um, uh, but uh, open access would still be in the field of market, and there still would still be a profits there, right? Yeah, and um, there are a diversity of opinions, I think, as to whether there is any role for profit-making companies to be engaged in scholarly communication. Um, my own view, and it's probably unsurprising given that I'm the chief executive of a commercial company, is that in the right circumstances, I think commercial companies can provide a tremendous amount of value and there is nothing inherently problematic with having commercial companies engaged. If the rules of the, the market they operate in prevent them from doing things that don't serve the, the end users, the researchers in this case, um, if they don't serve their needs. And so, you know, I think um, in my view, it wouldn't be a problem to continue to have commercial interests. But there certainly are people in the open access movement that believe this is something that the academic community gave up control of publishing at some point in the past. And perhaps now is the time for whether it's libraries or scholarly societies or some other institution coming from within the academic community should take control over the publishing process. And You know, in that scenario, uh, a publisher like Kandawi, I think we would look to f find ways of providing services to those publishers of the future. And it's something we're already doing. Um, so in addition to our core business of publishing 200 open access journals that we own ourselves, we've recently started working in partnership with uh, nonprofits. So uh, most recently, the AAAS, uh, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, um, we've been working with them to provide um, services and technology um, that underpin new journals that they're launching in partnership with other scholarly societies and national academies. And um, we have no ownership in those journals, but we provide, again, some editorial and production services and technology development. And I imagine that's how our business would evolve if the landscape shifts so that scholarly societies and universities become sort of the owners of the journals of the future. But, but are you forced to make that transition or are you, um, do you want to do that transition? Um, you know, I view the market's an interesting thing. The market will push you in whatever direction it happens to go in. And there's things that impact that. And the best you can do as, as you know, in my position running a company is to try to respond as best you can and to see the future and to see where you can add value the most. And you know, throughout the, the digital 
revolution that's happened over the past 20, 30 years, so many other industries have faced either becoming obsolete or having to redefine themselves in some way. And, you know, I looked at things like independent music labels, which really struggled initially with the rise of online distribution of music. And then I think many of the successful ones have been able to redefine themselves to be more of a support service for independent musicians and, you know, providing them with things that they they need in order to succeed on their own. And you've now got an ecosystem where I think you've got a great opportunity for small musicians, artists to really create a a dedicated following and build their career in a way that wasn't possible in the old uh, big label dominated uh, industry. And I could see something like that happening. But, um, you know, I think it's it's very dangerous to try to guess too far out where the market's going to go because um, there's a lot of factors at play. I think funders getting increasingly engaged is, is going to have a, a clear impact. But the fact is that's also mostly a European phenomenon at the moment. And uh, Europe's share of the, the total research output is it's a relatively small fraction. I don't know, 10 or 20 percent of, of the, the research papers are um, – coming from researchers that are funded by these these agencies. And if you look at the United States and if you look at um, in Asia, there seems to be much less focus from funding agencies on mandating a shift towards open access at the moment. So uh, that's interesting because uh, a question that often arises is is uh, different parts of the world uh, has a different discussion than, than we do maybe in Europe. Um, uh, so, so how do you see open access in the future uh, other places? It's interesting because I think when we look at our author base, we have very broad geographic representation. But I think that what is driving authors in each of those regions is fundamentally different. And so I think within Europe and to some degree to North America, a significant number of the authors publishing with us are doing so because they are motivated to publish on an open access basis. That's a key driver for them. Many of the the researchers publishing with us coming from, you know, uh, parts of the United States, but as well um, China, you know, China's uh, for us and for most other publishers, the number one um, sort of uh, most prolific country um, in terms of research output. The motivations there seem far more driven around um, journal prestige, impact factor, all these sort of traditional metrics of, of quality. And as problematic as some of those metrics are, the reality is that's what's driving um, research behavior. And so I think we do well across the world because our journals, in addition to being open access, are also, you know, very um, highly respected. They have good brands, good reputations. They're they're well cited, well read. So, you know, I think the, the best strategy I've seen is to provide as good of a service as you can. And hopefully that will appeal to a diverse range of consumers. Um, but I don't know five, 10 years out in the future, are you going to see meaningful differences in how open access works in Europe and how it works in the rest of the world. And it's quite possible that would happen. There's a lot of going on uh, on policies, as we talked about. Um, Do you see that as uh, creating more competition for uh, your company? I mean, in some sense, um, yes, that as there's more funding going into support open access, there's a lot more interest from traditional publishers as well as from new entrants to come in. I don't see that as a problem myself. I think being a large player in what used to be a very marginalized part of the publishing ecosystem was a worse place to be than to be a relatively smaller player in a more mainstream uh, ecosystem. And I 
certainly welcome uh, the growth of the, the OA industry, um, even though that means that very well-funded competitors um, are, are coming in to compete with us. Because I fundamentally believe that we can provide a very good quality of service and a very good experience for the researchers we work with. And, um, you know, uh, I fundamentally, as, as someone running a business, I'd rather compete in a fair competitive game where we have lots of really strong competitors making us, pushing us to be the best. And that's one of the things that I always found unsatisfying about the traditional publishing market was that um, there wasn't that much incentive to innovate or really uh, try to improve the business. And I think that that it shows the, the, this is an industry where there hasn't been nearly as much innovation as there have been in other parts of the, the online publishing segment. And I think a big part of that is that there wasn't much incentives to, uh, to be competitive or to uh, most of the incentives were around cost cutting. And, you know, if your revenue is pretty stable and guaranteed for years and years out into the future, probably the right way to run a traditional publishing house is to focus on how you can cut costs because that's the one thing that is at your disposal. Um, there's a lot of uh, big deals being uh, negotiated uh, or uh, renegotiated um, uh, at the moment. Um, where is your company in those talks? Is there an opportunity there? Unfortunately not. Um, you know, I think this is in the past few years, this shift towards negotiating open access agreements as part of traditional big deal discussions um, has really put pure open access publishers at a huge disadvantage because there is no ongoing big deal discussion that we can tack on an open access component to. And, you know, we've tried reaching out to certain institutions to say, you know, you have a funding agreement with, you know, these publishers to pay for open access as part of the big deal. Would you be willing to create a similar agreement with us? And in some cases, it's worked. We do have, um, you know, a few dozen institutions that pay either part or all of the publication charges of the researchers. Um, but it's a very small number uh, relative to the, the the overall pool of authors we work with. And most of the concerns from from the universities have either been that we're too small and it's essentially just not worth their time to interact with us because the, the the number of articles that are going to be published in a Hindawi journal is so much smaller than the number that would be published in Elsevier or Springer Nature or Wiley journals. The other concern that we've heard is libraries rightfully saying all of the funds we have are already tied up in these big deals. We don't have additional money to pay for open access. And the only way we could pay for open access is if we started canceling subscriptions to big deals. And the researchers at our university simply couldn't accept that, that we would now have um, less and less access to subscription content. And, you know, I think there have been movements. There's um, uh, an initiative called um, OA 2020, where you know, a lot of uh, universities are coming together and saying, we will commit to actively shifting our budgets away from subscriptions towards open access. And as promising as that sounded when I first heard of it, most of the focus there has, again, been on shifting the existing agreements with large subscription publishers to include open access um, as part of the package deal that's negotiated, rather than taking money away from those agreements to invest in, in smaller or pure open access journals. Um, well, you mentioned that... Um uh, that you should um, you should focus on on your allies uh, and not uh, your enemies in this business. What do you mean by that? So, you know, I think within the the open access movement, there's um, there's a lot of people across every constituency within universities, within 
publishers, within researchers, within funding agencies that already agree with each other. They already agree that the future should be one in which open access and innovation and competition are the basis for how research is communicated. And instead of trying to convince everybody else that that view is the correct view and arguing in public and having really an antagonistic relationship where you you sort of blame the other side for being um, either dishonest or not having the research community's best interests at heart. I, you know, I think that that whole line of discussion um, is fundamentally unproductive. And it's not just true in this context. Uh, you know, I think I've, I'm American and looking at the American political scene, I think it's really unproductive to have these shouting matches between people on one side of an argument and the other. And I think where I've seen true solutions come forward and work is when you ignore the people that don't agree with you, you focus on the people that do agree with you, and you start having discussions around how can we make this thing we're already doing work better. And so bringing together the researchers that embrace open access and the publishers that embrace open access and the funders and the librarians that embrace open access and have them come up with strategies to succeed together is going to work a lot better than focusing all this attention on these antagonistic political debates. Paul Peters, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. If you want to get the latest updates on our podcast, then sign up for our newsletter at opensciencetalk.com. This podcast is produced by the University Library at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. Thanks for listening.